We continue to look at this thing the Bible calls revival. To revive is to restore life. It's God restoring us to the life that he desires that we would experience, that life that the death and resurrection of Jesus makes possible for us. Revival, that fresh work of God, it's a sovereign work of God. We can't produce it, but we can put ourselves in a position to receive it. We can posture ourselves. And so we're looking at responses to God. We saw last night the response of grace. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to those who humble himself. What is that grace? That grace is God giving me the power and the desire to fully live in obedience to him. Tonight we add a sister virtue. Grace and forgiveness are closely linked in Scripture. We'll see that tonight. Psalm 85, 6, I referenced the passage Sunday morning. Let's read it together out loud off the screen. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? This is our prayer in these days. That fresh work of God, that awakening, that spiritual renewal. But notice how the psalmist prays in the plural. Will you not revive us again? Revival may begin in an individual life, an individual heart, but it won't stay there. It'll overflow into a marriage. It will begin to impact an entire family. It'll begin to bleed into the small group ministry where you attend in your church. God willing, it'll begin to pour into the life of the congregation and ultimately spill out into the community as the cascading grace of God goes on and on. Turn with me tonight in the New Testament to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, your workbook page 12. Our topic tonight, freedom through forgiveness. Freedom through forgiveness. Now, since we're approaching the halfway mark of our eight-day journey, I, I wanted to give you just a, a perspective on where we've been and where we're going. So you see my diagram on the screen. Now, the vertical line with you at the bottom and God at the top, that represents your relationship with God. My preaching these last two days have primarily been focusing on our vertical relationship, our relationship with God. How do I draw closer to God? And those responses that we've been exploring, how do I embrace those so that I might draw closer to the Lord? God's invitation is draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. That's his invitation to us. The horizontal lines you can see with the... Uh, arrows on each end pointing to others, that represents our relationship with others. Now, there's an important pattern here, vertical first and then horizontal. See, you need God's help to get right with others. So we get right with God first, and that enables us now to begin to get right with others. Now, many of you have already met with God in these days, but some of you are going to meet with God in a different place where those two lines intersect. That represents this reality. My relationship with God is impacted by my relationship with you. If I'm not walking in a right relationship with you as defined in God's word, it's going to impact, it's going to hinder my relationship with God. Tucked away in John 15, 
that upper room discourse, some of the final words of Jesus, final instructions to his disciples. John 15, starting at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you are to love one another. My friends, if you do what I command you, this I command you, that you love one another. Now, three times in that passage, notice, God commands us to love one another. It's not just a nice thing to do. It's not just a polite thing to do. I'm commanded to love you. If you profess faith in Christ, if you identify as a follower of Christ, I do not have the option of not loving you. Not if I want to obey God, not if I want to live in the revealed will of God. I'm under divine mandate here. I'm commanded to love you. It's a command. In your workbook, our Revival Truth tonight, the revived heart demonstrates the love of Christ by choosing to forgive others. What does loving you look like? This command to love you, what does it look like? Sometimes it looks like this. I have to forgive you. I have to forgive you. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of whether you're repentant or not, I have to forgive you. Why is forgiveness a big deal to God? I'm going to show you clearly tonight commands in Scripture to forgive. Why? Well, number one, God is a forgiving God, isn't he? Aren't we all examples of a forgiving God? And every time you and I choose to forgive, we're acting like Christ. We're bearing the image of God. We're putting his forgiving heart on display. When I choose to forgive, I'm demonstrating the forgiveness of God. Another reason that I'm commanded to forgive is because we live in a fallen world. And there are lots of ways to get hurt in this fallen world. And forgiveness is important in navigating the various hurts in life. Someone in the room, I don't know who, someone in the room is stuck in his or her Christian life. You got stuck when you were hurt. And because you've not responded scripturally to that hurt, you've really not moved beyond that hurt. And it continues to hold you back. Thinking about ways that people hurt us. They, they hurt us physically. Perhaps you were in a business with somebody and an employee or a partner took advantage of you and swindled money and in essence uh, uh, robbed you. Maybe you were actually the victim of some kind of physical abuse Maybe you grew up in an alcoholic home and suffered physical abuse. People abuse us. They hurt us physically. People hurt us emotionally. They hurt us emotionally. Certainly hope that you come to our Home Life Cafe, especially as we talk about good biblical parenting practices. Some of you have hurts because you were victimized by wrong and sinful parenting practices, a, a, a parent who withheld affection from you, a, a parent who put you on a performance basis. In other words, instead of loving you unconditionally, they only loved you when you performed, and let's be honest, you never quite performed up to their expectations, and it left a nagging emptiness inside of you. Perhaps a parent who exercised a very poor parenting practice of favoritism and you weren't the favored child and you had to live in the shadow 
of somebody else. Maybe you grew up in the home of a divorce. Or maybe you were the unwilling or unwanting recipient of a divorce. People hurt us emotionally. People hurt us verbally. Now, I know our mamas taught us sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Our mamas were sincere, but they were wrong. Words hurt, don't they? Words go down deep. Critical words, hateful words, slanderous words, gossip. And sometimes it's not the words that were said to us or about us. Sometimes it's the words we didn't hear. A father who never said, I'm proud of you. A mother who never said, I love you. We won't do this, but if we were to stand and each of us share some of our more painful memories, most of us could remember a specific time where someone, probably someone we trusted, said something to us or something about us that went down so deep the scars are still there years, maybe even decades later. Evidences of a lack of forgiveness. Now, here's typically what we do. Because we don't know how to deal with the pain, we don't know how to deal with the, with the hurt, we, so often we just stuff it. We just kind of push it down and push it down. And sometimes months, years, decades can even pass. But there remains a lingering effect from that hurt because you've not fully appropriated God's forgiveness, both in receiving and in extending it to others. So some more of my uh, pesky questions. Is there someone you resent? Holding on to a grudge, nursing hurt feelings, whatever phrase you want to use. When you think of this person, do you feel angry? I mean, does your blood pressure just kind of start to rise and you find your face flush? Even though the offense was years ago, it's as fresh as it happened today. Is there someone you blame for your present circumstances. If my dad had just been there for me, if he had just stayed with us and hung in there, if my ex-spouse had just tried a little harder to make this relationship work instead of bailing so quickly. Do you desire this person pay for what he or she did to you? You have this sense that justice has not been done. They owe me something. They need to pay. Do you secretly wish that something bad would happen to the person? Now, you're not going to say it out loud. You're too polite. But if you heard they got bad news, secretly you'd rejoice. Do you tell others about how this person hurt you when their name comes up in conversation? Are you quick to weigh in. Let me tell you about what they did. Let me tell you about what they said. Then finally, here's really the tough one. Can you thank God for this person? 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus. You're with me in Ephesians chapter 4, all the way down to verse 30, please. Ephesians 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. All right, pause. We have in the passage a clear, clear mandate from God that we're to forgive. That we're to forgive. And when we choose to disobey, when we don't conform our will to God's will, when we continue to hold on to the hurt, to hold on to the sense of injustice, there are negative consequences. Consequences for not forgiving others. Number one, you will not enjoy God's full and complete forgiveness. See, it's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt you. Look again at verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, what does that mean, to grieve the Spirit of God? Well, what does it mean when someone grieves you? Someone does something offensive or hurtful. How do you respond? We're grieved. We typically withdraw emotionally from that person. You've hurt me. I'm backing off. I'm going into self-protection mode. And there is a sense because the Holy Spirit is a person with all the faculties of person, uh, of personhood. When you and I sin against God and unforgiveness is clear disobedience, we've offended the Holy Spirit. Thankfully, he doesn't abandon us. We're sealed into the day of redemption, and yet there is now a distance there. We don't sense his presence and power as we did in times past. Jesus described a similar thing tucked away there in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. A direct connection between my willingness to forgive you and my ability to experience God's forgiveness in my life, that experiential forgiveness that we talked about last night. There's a second consequence of not forgiving others. You become a slave to destructive emotions. A slave to destructive emotions. Now, in verse 31, we have what I describe as six nasty emotions. Nasty in this sense, they are corrosive to our soul. They destroy the soul, the essence of who and what we are. Think of them, these six, as being related. They feed on each other. I describe it as a downward spiral. They suck us down, down, down. The first one that's described is the word bitterness. Put away from you all bitterness. Again, what is bitterness? Resentment, grudges. We find the word used in Hebrews 12, 15. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now, notice the language here, a root of bitterness. That's what it does. When you and I don't forgive, we've now exposed our soul to this destructive emotion of bitterness. And what does it do? It literally begins to root itself into us. It's thinking of it as, as a cancer in the soul. Hey, you've been around bitter people before, but... Not for long, have you? Because it affects us. Now, here's the sad reality. It doesn't just stay here. Causes trouble. Springing up. And by it, many become defiled. Medical science tells us that bitterness, it's not only harmful to the soul. 
Did you know that your bitterness is harmful to your body as well? Dr. Charles Rayson, a professor of psychiatry at the Emory University School of Medicine and a CNN mental health expert, let me quote, Bitterness is a nasty solvent that erodes every good thing. Feeling bitter interferes with the body's hormonal and immune systems. Studies have shown that bitter, angry people have higher blood pressure and heart rate and are more likely to die of heart disease and other illnesses. See, in his command to forgive, God is trying to protect us from these destructive forces. It was a cool, crisp fall day somewhere in the Midwest. A young woman left her apartment, got into her car, turned on the ignition, and nothing happened. The engine tried to start, and then suddenly it stopped. She didn't know anything about cars, couldn't even open the hood, so she called a local mechanic. He arrived, opened the hood, and here's what he found. That's a very large, exotic, dead snake. It crawled up into the engine during the night, attracted by the heat of the engine. And then when she tried to start the engine, it got caught in the belts. Now, some of you are mad that I put that and made you look at it. That's what your soul looks like in the grip of bitterness. It gums up the works. It shuts us down, and we're not going to experience that quality of life that God desires we have. That bitterness left unchecked becomes wrath. That's the second of the six. Now, in this context, it's describing repressed anger. This is the volcano effect. It's, it's building up inside of you, all right? Again, left unchecked, wrath becomes anger. And in the context, he's describing outbursts of anger. Now you've got a very short fuse and now you've begun to be very critical and hard to live with. I was leading a conference in Fort Wayne, Indiana. It was a fascinating situation. We had four inner city churches all come together, multiple ethnicities, and a lot of these folks had grown up on the streets. They'd grown up hard in inner city Fort Wayne, Indiana. During a testimony service, a, a young mother got up and she said, last night I had together my family. I think she had three small children, her husband. And she said, I had to seek their forgiveness because I had become an angry mom. And she said, I, I didn't understand what was fueling the anger. And after she sat through these forgiveness lessons, she said, I realized growing up on the streets, I was sexually assaulted by several men. And my heart grew hard and crusty. And that root of bitterness took root. And she believed now that what she was experiencing was, again, the outward effects of that inner root of bitterness. And she says, I've made the decision to forgive. Appropriating God's forgiveness and choosing to forgive those who hurt me so that I might better love my family. Here's a little phrase for your notes. Fixation breeds imitation what you fixate on you will eventually imitate you fix on the person of jesus you'll imitate jesus but watch you fixate on the hurt you fixate on the wrong you fixate on the injustice that's what you will actually begin to imitate yourself that anger if left unchecked becomes clamor quarreling and fighting and now people are walking around on eggshells and by the way, parents, don't kid yourself. The children know there's something wrong. They may not know exactly what it is, but they know there's something wrong. 
That clamor left unchecked becomes slander. Now, the word slander means to speak evil of, to attack a person's character. Here's where we just get downright mean. My mother was right about you. You will never change. You're good for nothing. You will never amount to nothing. Ashamed of you. Some of you have been on the receiving ends, the receiving end of some of those mean, slanderous words that go so deep. And then we hit bottom, malice. The word malice literally means the intent to do harm. It's just pure hatred. Now remember, the apostle is writing to believers. Just because I'm a Christ follower doesn't mean I'm immune from any of these emotions. I have found Christ followers all over the country with deep, deep hatred in their hearts. The result of that lingering bitterness that was left unchecked. Last spring, after a service, I was just standing at the front. Uh, an older lady came to me, and she said, I need to tell you my story. When I was about six, my grandfather sexually assaulted me, and then he sexually assaulted my four-year-old sister. And She said, I never forgot it. I've hated him. He's long gone, but I've continued to hate him. Tonight, I said, God, no more hatred. I'm going to choose to forgive. She was in her 70s. All that anger and all that bitterness for all those decades. But that night, she said, God, no more. I choose to forgive. We're going to spend the rest of our night unpacking verse 32. Let me read it again. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Four forgiveness principles, quickly. Number one, true forgiveness means giving up the right to get even. Giving up the right to get even. Jesus used that language in Matthew 6, 12. We know it well as the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Here's our working definition of forgiveness. It means I fully release the offender from his or her debt. It means fully clearing his or her record. It is a promise never to bring up the offense against him or her again. When I choose to forgive, I choose to forgive as God forgives me, and God says it's forgiven, and I will never bring it against you again. Second, Forgiveness is an act of obedience to God that often runs contrary to your emotions. Now let's talk about why forgiveness is so hard. At least it is for me. Forgiveness is hard because it's so unnatural, right? It's not what I feel like doing. You've hurt me. I feel like hurting you back. And by the way, if you identify with that, we're in good company. Peter had the same struggle. Matthew 18, Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. I love Peter. I identify with Peter. He and I suffer from the same disease, foot and mouth disease, all right? Seems like always saying the wrong thing. So he comes to Jesus, and I like to read between the lines. 
How often shall my brother sin and I forgive? Now, we've got these 12 guys. They're living in very close community. Someone was getting under Peter's skin. Someone was ticking him off. Was it James and John? Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. Was it Matthew, the tax collector? Judas? We don't know. Six times it's happened. Peter's waiting for number seven. And he's waiting for permission so that when it happens the seventh time, he can punch the guy out. By the way, Peter was playing it safe. You see, the Jewish rabbis taught you had to forgive three times. They said after three times, you could let him have it. So Peter takes the three, doubles it, throws on one more for good measure, right? I can see Peter right now. Lord, you can just pat me on the shoulder right here. Lord, seven times I'm going to put up with this. And then you're going to give me permission. It's not what Jesus said. Not seven times. Seventy times. Seven. Most commentators would say unlimited forgiveness. I was pastoring one of my churches. One of my men came one afternoon to see me. He sat there. His eyes got misty. And he said, uh, last night my wife confessed to me that she has been in an affair for the last month. She told me that she has broken it off and has promised that she will never see the man again. She's asked me to forgive her. She wants our marriage to remain intact. They had two young elementary age boys. And he said, I know she's repentant. I believe she is. He said, but I don't think I can forgive her. He was ready to call up the attorney. I looked at him and I said, uh, you've come to me for counsel. Do you trust me? He said, I think so. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Would you just be willing to give God some time before you make that decision? Just give God some time. You're in a world of hurt right now. Let's give God some time and see what he does. And I offered, would you just be willing to meet with me a couple of times a week? And we did that, and we walked through these forgiveness principles. And, and then we began to invite his wife, and she came, and I was able to help them walk through reconciliation. And God graciously healed their marriage. And by the way, I don't know who that's for tonight. Someone's wondering, can a marriage survive an, an affair? And the answer is yes. I love it. Someone's described a marriage as the union of two forgivers. It's what it takes. All right, fast forward. It's my last Sunday in that church. That's a painful Sunday. You know, at the end of the service, they make you stand at the front, and all the folks come by, and they're saying their goodbyes. Oh, Pastor Greg, we're going to miss you so much. We're going to miss your preaching so much, and they just lie and lie. <laughs> and there at the end of the line was this couple. She came up and she gave me a little hug and went to talk to Patty and then he walked up and before I could do anything, he put his arm around my neck and he pulled me close so he could whisper in my ear and he said, thank you for not giving up on me. And I said, you know it was the Lord. He said, yes, but the Lord used you. Number three, true forgiveness is only possible with God's help. True forgiveness is only possible with God's help. Notice again in verse 32, the command to forgive is linked to God's forgiveness, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now, what the writer is telling us here, my experience 
of God's forgiveness becomes instrumental in my ability to forgive you. Like your pastors, I've heard so many sad, heartbreaking stories. Abuse, adultery, I mean, just, just heartbreaking stuff. And someone will sit there and they'll pour their heart out and they'll look at me and they'll say, now you're probably going to tell me to forgive. And I'm thinking, well, I was going to tell you that, but maybe I'll take a different approach. So I start asking questions. Let me ask you, do you believe that Jesus could forgive that sin? Yes. I mean, he hung on the cross. He looked into the face of the men who just nailed him there and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah, Jesus could forgive. And then I said, does Jesus live in you? Yes, Jesus lives in me. Then let the Jesus in you forgive through you. See, that's why we talked about grace last night. Because we have been forgiven, we can forgive. He does the same thing in writing to the Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. When someone says, I can't forgive, I say, I agree. I can't forgive as the scripture is defining forgiveness. But God's grace gives me the will and the desire to live in obedience to his will. God's grace I can do it through Christ. Number four, forgiveness is demonstrated by acts of kindness towards the person who hurt you. Again, verse 32 begins with be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. Now hear me, your, your soul is not some kind of sponge. You can't just soak it up. We have to either react, which is usually bad, or respond. Respond biblically so how do i respond i have to respond or i'll react how do i respond well jesus gave us some great advice luke 6 27 i say to you who hear love your enemies do good to those who hate you bless those who curse you pray for those who abuse you i'll be honest there were church members at time who went after me went after my family, brought a lot of pain and hurt into my life. But I had to learn early on, I can't hate someone I'm praying for. You can't hate someone you're praying for. See, that prayer is more for your benefit than their benefit. I was pastoring one of my churches, chairman of the deacons and I uh, hit it off, and we were having lunch every week and planning and working together. And about a year in, I had to make a decision and I crossed him. I still believe it was the, the right decision. It was in the best interest of the church, but he couldn't get over it. He, he, just, uh, he, he just got really twisted. He tried to hurt me, tried to undermine my ministry. God graciously protected me. And he and his wife, you know, they continued to come, but they kind of moved out to the edge of the church. They'd come, but they weren't involved at all. And time passed. And then a mutual friend called me and said, I thought you would just want to know he got some very bad news. His daughter, raised in a Christian home, off in college now, has rejected the gospel and embraced an ungodly lifestyle. He said, I just thought you'd want to know. I said, thank you for telling me. So I called him. It was a Saturday afternoon. And I said, could I come to your house for a minute? And he said, okay. We sit down in his study, and I said, here's what I've heard. And I, I just wanted to come and ask, is it true? 
big old tears. Yeah, it's killing her mother and me. I said, I can't imagine how you're feeling as a parent. Can I pray for you? Oh, please. And we prayed and we embraced and I left. Now, we weren't the best of friends after that. It certainly improved our relationship. Now, I don't tell you that story for you to think that I'm a good guy because I'm not a good guy. The moment I heard his bad news, you know what my first thought was? He deserves that. No, he doesn't. Nobody deserves that. At that moment, I realized there was lingering bitterness in my heart. I did what I did, not for his benefit, but for my benefit. Now, having had lots of these conversations, I've heard a few excuses along the way. Number one, they don't deserve to be forgiven. Agreed. And by the way, is... Is that true for you as well? Is that how you want God to respond to you? Do we have to deserve God's forgiveness? Because none of us can. No, they don't deserve to be forgiven, but neither do you. I'm still hurting from the offense. It's kind of like this. Once I get over the hurt, then I'll choose to forgive. Now, you need to understand, forgiveness is a command. It's as clear a command as any other command in Scripture. We have to choose to set emotions aside, engage our will. God, I'm choosing to obey you. And here's what I've discovered. When we choose to live out of the will, rather than allowing emotions to dictate, God will come and heal the emotions. God will come and he'll settle the emotions. You'll just keep stirring the pot until you engage the will and choose to forgive because of God's command. Number three, if I forgive them, they'll be off the hook. Now, I have a little saying. Sin makes us stupid. It really does. Let's just think a minute. Who's on the hook here? You're not sleeping at night. You've got stomach issues. Your conscience is guilty before God. You're not feeling close to God. They may be sleeping like a baby. Someone described it like this, harboring resentment and unforgiveness. It's like me drinking the poison and expecting you to die. That's why I say sin makes us stupid. And by the way, nobody gets off the hook, my friend. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Nobody's going to get off the hook. Finally, I cannot forget, so I cannot forgive. Be careful with these little platitudes, forgive and forget. I really don't think I see that in Scripture. I think I've illustrated to you tonight that there are offenses that I was the recipient of, and I haven't forgotten them, but I can tell you I have forgiven them. I'm not sure God always wants us to forget. Here's a great little saying, God never wastes a hurt. You know how you're healing through this journey of forgiveness? When you're willing to let God take that hurt and make a ministry out of it. See, because you've walked through this process of choosing to forgive and experiencing God's healing, you're going to be able to sit down with somebody someday and look them in the eye and say, Hey, I understand. Let me tell you my story. I've been where you are. And by the way, there's people that you'll be able to minister to. I'll never be able to minister to because I didn't have to walk that way. 